Hello and welcome to The Urbanist, Monocle's programme all about the built environment and how to make our cities better places to live in. I'm your host, Andrew Tuck. Coming up... The greenest building is the building that already exists and we have an opportunity to really transform our towns and cities. The rise in online shopping as well as ageing buildings and climbing overheads have become existential threats to department stores over the past decade. So what do we do with these grand heritage buildings? On today's programme, we debate what is best for our department stores to repurpose, revitalise or simply remove. Joining me are Henrietta Billings, Director of Save Britain's Heritage, a charity which campaigns for endangered historic buildings, and Toby Pentecost, co-founder of the property developer Candor. So join us for our discussion over the next 30 minutes right here on The Urbanist with me, Andrew Tuck. Henrietta, let's begin with you. Can you explain to us a little bit about what your organisation does? Yes, certainly. So Save Britain's Heritage is a national campaigning organisation and we essentially exist to defend historic buildings from demolition. But importantly, what sets us apart from other organisations is that we don't just say no to redevelopment, but we come up with alternative ideas and alternative visions for how these buildings can be reused. And that's something that I personally find fascinating about this job because you're working with architects, developers, engineers all the time to come up with imaginative ways to repurpose buildings. So it's about taking 100 years of history and bringing it forward for another 100 years and We work on all types of buildings and not just listed buildings, buildings that have kind of slipped through the net for whatever reason. And Henrietta, we have you here today because you've produced a report which looks at the future role and function of the department store. Because in the UK, we have a a bit of a crisis that many of the, the big chains kind of fell apart during the pandemic. And we have many of these empty buildings or buildings that need to be reused. Just tell us a little bit before we open up the discussion. Why are you so focused on the department store? We published this report last year called Departing Stores and it is designed to highlight the plight that we find ourselves in with these absolutely fantastic buildings which have been the mainstay of high streets across the UK, often built, if you like, as cathedrals of retail almost. They're a destination and they're also, they hold a lot of memories for a lot of families, a lot of people who've literally grown up with these buildings around them and have been very much a part of their shopping and retail and social lives. But as we find that shopping habits are changing and the economy is changing, these buildings are struggling to find a purpose because, as we all know, whether you like it or not, so much of our shopping and the way we trade and the way we consume is changing and there's no getting away from it. So the question then is, what do we do with these buildings? Do we simply abandon them, turn our backs on them and focus instead on our home computers and our smartphones and continue ordering from Amazon? Or do we start thinking imaginatively about how these buildings can continue to contribute to the life and prosperity and attractiveness of our town centres? Because they have so much potential in our view. And they're also architecturally often the most magnificent building on the street. So there's lots to work with. And the question is what to do with them. It strikes me there are two stories here in a way. There's the, the physical story of the spaces and, and what happens to them. And then there's a side debate almost about what we're doing with our shopping habits and, and how people are engaging in the streets and, and what we need. Now, let's bring in Toby here. You have a property company. Just tell us what that does. Is it a portfolio? Is it investment? Is it development? What do you do? 
Candor is a development company and a development management company. And we see ourselves very much as a connection between the market for uses to real estate and also the market for ownership to real estate. So we spend a lot of our time assessing market need, geographical and local need with investors' desire to invest in real estate. And so we see ourselves as the go-between to generate value for local stakeholders as well as investors. So we bring private capital into situations where development or refurbishments or increasingly, as we refer to it, repositionings are required to create value. And so we are the slightly the jack of all trades where it comes to bringing forward change in real estate. And just for an idiot like me, so I would pick up the phone to you because, for example, I have a a building which is maybe kind of at the end of its current use of life, needs a bit of rethinking going about it. I haven't got perhaps the money to kind of do it all. I might phone Toby and say, can you come and look at my building in Manchester, in London? I think that there's something here for you. Look, that instance can exist, and that has happened, and that does happen. I think probably more commonly, what you have to understand is that commercial real estate department stores being a good example of commercial real estate, overwhelmingly the ownership of commercial real estate is funds or what you might refer to as institutional capital. Institutional capital would typically look for rental income in return for very low risk. And so what you might find is an institution buys an asset, a department store, when it has 20 years of a lease to John Lewis, and then 19 years later, with only one year to go, they would say, well, look, I can do two things. I can reinvest capital and take all this risk, go to planning, do construction, try and find new tenants, extend the life of this building for 20 years, or I can exit the whole business plan, sell it at the market rate, and go and reinvest that in something that's already been done and polished and is ready and is already providing me with income. And that would be the risk-free option. And oftentimes that is what happens. So where it concerns department stores in particular, what we're seeing is this kind of end of life series of disposals of department stores, which have previously flourished as an economic business case. So there's a department store operator who's made money and created a business and contributed to the town centre. And for the reasons that Henrietta's identified, Maybe that isn't happening so much, so the demand is reduced. So handing back the keys to the landlord, landlord says, what do I do? It goes to the market. And that is a moment at which we would typically get involved. And we would look at that opportunity and we would assess the market need for a department store. Let's imagine that that's dramatically reduced. And actually, there's an alternative use that would now be more coherent as a business case. And so we would make that business case and we would take that opportunity to one of our investors and we would say, look, here's a business plan. This is where the planning risk is. This is where the commercial risk is. This is where the build-out risk is. And we would build a business case around that. The investor would then intensively interrogate that business plan, look at the risk. So really, is it listed? Should we be worried about spot listing? Can we demolish some of it? Should we be demolishing some of it? Should we be saving all of it? Who's going to take it later? If they do, what rent are they going to pay? How green is the outturn product? What's the local authority's attitude towards the plans that we have from a commercial perspective? And then once we clear those hurdles, effectively, we we have a business plan. And if we can acquire the asset on a pricing basis that makes that viable, then we would be the engaged operator to deliver that business plan. 
Let's dive into a real case study, which you've been heavily involved in. There should have been a decision at the moment, but it's been delayed here in the UK, which is to do with a, a department store on Oxford Street, a strip in central London, which many of our listeners around the world will know, that's had its ups and downs. Many think it has more downs and ups at the moment, but we'll see what happens. It's endlessly being revived. It's never been a premium, premium street along its entirety, always outposts of smarter stores such as Selfridges. But this Marks & Spencer stores has been around for a long, long time the owners marks and spencers would like to knock it down you're involved in trying to make sure that that doesn't happen tell us in a simple concise way what the nub of that debate is marks and spencers is a corner building therefore really conspicuous built in portland stone 1929 right next door to selfridges it's also opposite a new primark store and when you walk down that part of the street you're very aware of a lot of people and heavy footfall so currently it's a five-story department store and it has all of the different homeware and clothes and retail that you'd expect. And they just say they don't need that space now. Yeah, and you know, that's their decision, that's a commercial decision. But the point is that what they're proposing to replace it with is essentially a 10-storey office block. There are various different components to this building, it's not just one single building and that's reflected in the design on the street. So Oxford Street is obviously a street with hundreds of years of history And it has a design response to that, which is separate buildings in the street form, in the terrace form, if you like. And so the M&S proposal is, in our view, a pretty bland, boring office development. They say it's a green building and it's going to be better for the environment and they can do better with it. Yeah, but what we're saying is that by retrofitting the existing building, you can do far, far better because you're not releasing 40,000 tonnes of CO2 into the atmosphere by the demolition and it's the embodied energy that doesn't get counted when Marks and Spencers is doing their calculations for the new build and what's fascinating here is really a discussion that we haven't had before and this is why it's so important and whatever your view on the merits of the building and it's not listed and it's not the conservation area just skims it it's not actually in a conservation area but it's a really handsome building it's faced in Portland Stone there's no reason that we have come across that it cannot actually be retrofitted and the question here is we're all talking about the fortunes of Oxford Street and how to bring back vitality and preserve the character of Britain's probably most famous retail street and we don't believe that building office blocks in this particular location is necessarily making the optimal viable use of that site which begs the question, are we really doing the right thing? But are you, are you fighting for this because you like the building or because you think that actually it's better for the environment? Because there's carbon capture and everyone's talking about the amount of carbon that we release. Is it just on aesthetic grounds that you're fighting this or because you believe it's the good decision? That's a brilliant question because it's actually both. And the reason this public inquiry, which we had at the end of last year, which we're waiting for the result on, is the first time that heritage and sustainability have been discussed at a public inquiry at this level. And the reason it's triggered so much public attention is because it's a international brand, a national household name that also trades on sustainability credentials. And what we're saying is that actually, if you take the bones of this building and you properly examine a deep retrofit and then compare it to the benefits of your new building that you're building from scratch, actually, we can contest and show that by keeping the existing building you are doing a much, much better service to the environment than demolishing and starting from scratch. But what is also very important about this case is that it could have a really long-term impact on how the construction industry works. And that's why we 
have put so much love and resources into this campaign because we really feel that we're at a tipping point. We feel that public opinion is very much with us. We managed to beat our crowdfunding targets for our legal fees just through a crowdfunding campaign. And we've had so much public interest and media interest in this case that we really feel that we're at a cusp, if you like. And this case is brings together all of these different issues and it's just a very exciting well and, and i think thing. i think to be honest you've benefited from being marks and spencers if it was some anonymous store elsewhere i don't think people would got involved in marks yeah. and spencers for good or bad is a bit like custard creams or the or british airways it's somehow representative of the nation so people have got flustered about it and just for listeners around the world approval was given for take down the building by westminster council there's an appeal it's going through and it's now at government level and they have to make a decision that's correct essentially yes so um michael gove the secretary of state called it in for a public inquiry. And that's because he took the view the implications for this case had more than local significance and that the results of this case could have national implications. So therefore, he called it in. And at a public inquiry, everything gets scrutinised and you have an independent inspector and all the issues get fully looked at. So it was a good opportunity for both sides to really get to the bottom of what this issue was about. And we very much welcome that public inquiry. Now, Toby, are these all alarm bells for you? Because you know, I, what's interesting is your company's determined to do good. You're, you're trying to take buildings, future-proof them, build in more environmental solutions. But when you hear all of these groups involved in a decision-making process, is this what worries you about the future planning? I would never profess to know enough about the M&S scheme to comment. Henrietta's obviously deeply, deeply involved and it's very impressive and it's important work. I think you touched on it with your question in a way because you said, well, is this you want to keep the building because of its architectural merit? Is this a carbon thing? And actually the third thing I think you mentioned was, you know, this is a shopping district, this should be shopping. So are you also challenging the use proposed potentially and in theory? And I think all I would say to that is, Planning discussions can be relatively challenging in city centres anyway, and oftentimes they're challenging because maybe the pushback is on, oh, the building's too tall, or the building is has a, an empiric assessment which can be adjusted to achieve an answer, which then is either pass or fail. Whereas I think the discussion around M&S is really, really important at this precise turning point in the market where real estate is being forced to address embodied carbon. I think the real estate industry has been assessing carbon in operation for a little while, not probably as long as we could have, but it's gathering really good pace now. And we're starting to really assess embodied carbon. And this is, for me, that's the principal issue with M&S. Yes, it's a striking building. Yes, it's offices versus retail debate. But for me, the ramifications of this case, probably irrespective of which way it goes in terms of the appeal outcome, will be for the future assessment of demolish versus refurbish is all around embodied carbon for me. So where I look at this case, I suppose, is I think that we just need to be very careful that we learn from this going forwards, this case, because what is a killer for investors and what will be a killer for the UK by virtue of that, because we rely so heavily on private capital, whether it's in businesses that occupy real estate, the ones that own it, the ones that put the risk money in to develop out buildings, is they all think about risk of money, risk of time. And what we are doing with M&S is we're hopefully we'll, we'll all emerge with a better understanding of embodied carbon targets, for example, where at the moment, this is kind of a new frontier, I would say. I think, Henrietta, I don't know if you agree with me, but you know, there isn't a basis, a target. It's very much a case by case. Case by case is good in a high profile case like this. 
where there's so much analysis and thought required, but not every planning application is something as significant as this. And to set up some ground rules would be really validating for Westminster, for the UK, for city centres. Those You might consider those to be alarm bells, because I think what, what we need to do is we need to come away from this with a better understanding of you know, what is deemed to be a good job around avoiding waste of embodied carbon, because that's what we're really talking about, isn't it? We talk about carbons into the atmosphere, but truthfully, there's a structure there that has been extracted from the earth. You know, the earth has paid a tax for that structure to exist. If we put it in the bin and do the same again, we're paying the tax twice. Can we avoid paying the tax twice? The problem with this is, Andrew, is myriad, because it was built as a shopping destination and it's being proposed as a office destination. And in other instances, shopping destinations are being proposed as hotel or residential. And what is deemed to be, you know, commercially a good fit across all of them is all over the place. I completely agree with you that that's very much needed. And the other point, just to clarify, I would say that it's not just an office block on Oxford Street that Mark Simmons is proposing. There would also be one or two floors of retail. But the point is, it's a much reduced retail offer. Obviously, it's up to Marks and Spencers to determine what is financially viable and a good business case. And we are very much behind proposals for reuse for the sustainable long-term longevity of that building. And we're not really arguing about the change of use. It's really just that question, what is the best way to bring back vitality and character We're going to talk more about proper retail and department stores because otherwise my producer will tell me off. But before we end up being a finance show, one more financial (laughs) question for you. Because I guess the other interesting thing is that we're in a time when there isn't a huge amount of capital in the market, when interest rates are super high. If we give another analogy, I know when we did a bit of work to our house, what was alarming was that every time they took down a wall or opened a hole in the ceiling, they found something else. So the cost at the end was fair and decent, but not what we, we thought we were going to pay at the beginning. Whereas, to be honest, if they just knocked the whole damn thing down again and we'd built from scratch, we'd have known what the cost was. And on a grander scale, is that what is the problem in the market now, Toby? For people, when they look at projects like you know, department stores or any project, there's just too much risk built into it at the moment if you're being asked to come up with all these other solutions along the way. Unquestionably, if two plots existed on the same street, one being a cleared site and the other one being a building that required refurbishment and they were priced accordingly fairly there would be a deeper demand for the cleared site because investors like price certainty so when you as you say undertook the refurbishment of your house you were hoping that what you paid at the end would be similar to what you budgeted at the beginning and that was really important to you and for investors of course the same applies and the second thing i would add to that is of course time so it's very difficult to overestimate the impact it has on a business plan if you spend a year longer than anticipated in a planning decision. For example, equally, if you budget for 12 months of construction works, but it takes 24 months, that has a huge impact on the success or failure of a scheme. And therefore, that goes in the risk column. I think that if we recognise these assets as being assets of significance and worthy of being repurposed and demolition is forbidden, then I would suggest that along with a listing, there are other tax breaks or incentives to encourage investors to reinvest in these properties. At the moment, the only tax break I can think of is rates relief for listed buildings, which allows a vacant property to avoid business rates, where an unlisted building would pay business rates on vacancy. So that's something. But I do think any kind of tax break that incentivizes developers to roll their sleeves up with a more tricky, more risky asset would be welcomed. But the other thing that I think is also important in this is where it concerns listing. Listings is quite a nuanced 
thing in itself. So Henrietta will know better than me, but a listing would encompass all of a listed building and all aspects where perhaps the reason for listing might be a particularly ornate Portland stone facade. And that's tricky because on the way in, you're having to make an assessment of the risk of, well, if the heritage argument is for the facade, should we just assume that we can retain the facade, adapt the building behind it for its new purpose and its new life, and that will satisfy the listing and and the decision there? But because of the way it's set up, it's actually very hard to do that, and you can't really underwrite that risk. And of course, that just goes to the risk column. And so I think changes in the way that listings communicate the elements of assets that are to be preserved would be highly valuable to you know incoming investors and developers to sort of say right okay well if we keep those pieces there and we alter the bits that really matter we can drive a you know a valuable commercial return here and indeed a valuable community return here for this asset because the thing with department stores as you've rightly said you know they occupy oftentimes the best plot on the best street which means that the loser here is the community a lot of the time because to my point about listed buildings not being liable for vacant business rates Oftentimes, these listed buildings will remain vacant for longer than they should be because there's no incentive to get on with it. And the other thing I would add as well is I think it would shock you the true cost of a planning consent, both in terms of time and in money, I think would shock you. It takes an inordinate amount of research, engineering, design, thought, mathematics, consulting to actually achieve a planning consent, even if you can achieve one. And that is quite a big undertaking. For example, in our business, I know a lot of investors would very much like to invest in development in the UK, but the planning system alone causes them to say, well, I'll draw the line there. So I will invest, but I will invest after the planning stage. And to my point, planning costs a lot of money, takes a lot of time. So often you do need that external capital to come in and fund these processes. Henrietta, when we think about these buildings existing now, are you rosier about outside of London, in the shires and in the the county towns where there are these department stores that have stumbled, that uses will be found for them? Well, we have a couple of really great examples of where there are some reuse projects that have been really successful. And Bournemouth is a really interesting one. Bobby's, a turn-of-the-century fantastic department store that was taken on by Verve Properties. And has been reimagined, if you like, in a really interesting way. There's art gallery space, cafe, restaurant, and some retail space. And it's a phase project. It's not something that has been transformed immediately, but it's a really interesting example of how you can turn around these fortunes. But each store, each street, each part of England is different, obviously. And so they're experiencing different pressures. But it depends where you go. And just tell me, both of you, we have in London a great example of a huge building being repurposed for retail, which is obviously Battersea Power Station. Do either of you think it's a, a good project, a bad project? What, what's your... I think it's a fantastically interesting project. It's a really... Only took 40 years or something to achieve. But <laughs> I was going to uh... <laughs> say, it's had about eight or nine different fantasy ideas about what to do with it. And it really, I mean, we saw this in, in lots of ways. Is like really the last chance saloon for this building. And it's such a fantastic building. But to see so much of that extraordinary brickwork restored. And when I went there, actually, at the weekend, I was expecting actually to feel it was a lot more crowded in by the Geary and Foster buildings. But actually, it felt at this point, like you were able to appreciate and stand back and kind of admire those incredible facades in a way that was really very impressive and then walking in is this I mean obviously there's a shopping centre feel to it but there's also a kind of entertainment and experience vibe and I think as a way to show how you can kind of tackle these real industrial giants 
it's a really, really kind of thrilling experience, really, to go there and, and also see so many people buzzing around and, and seemingly enjoy it. Plus, I went by boat, <laughs> which is one of the best things about it. You might imagine, imagine going to Batu by boat. It's brilliant. So, yeah, I found the whole thing really interesting. It'll be fascinating to see what happens when they build out the rest of the site on the other side of the building. But, yeah, from a restoration point of view, it's an interesting juxtaposition between, you know, the original fabric and then that gleaming steel yeah, and especially at the, the weekends, it seems to have found an audience. Toby, when we look at retail and the future of retail, you were talking about loads of department stores here have stumbled. In part, we must reflect that if you go to other parts of the world, they're still thriving as a format because people do see them as places of entertainment as so much more than you know, just racks of clothes. Many of them have failed here for their, the fault it lies with them in many ways. You can't blame anyone else. You can't just blame online retail. But when you look at the future of your developments and the kinds of projects you get involved in, do you think there is money for all sorts of projects if they're good in, in the UK? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think the UK needs, it's so important that, that we stay relevant to investors because we're so reliant on private capital in the UK. I think that there's a good case for good quality retail, experiential retail. I think Battersea Power Station is a fantastic one-off very hard to replicate. I mean, it's you know, they extended the tube network to make it work. Apple decided to make it its headquarters. It's also on the river, as you described. It's also pretty central. And also they were able to get a very, very high content of very, very valuable residential on the site, which helps fund a lot of what we will enjoy when we go there on weekends, you know, whether there's leisure or food and beverage and stuff. So I think we just need to be judicious about the amount of any one use class that we provide to a site. I think in the past, we've had a bubble in supply of one particular use. So obviously, we had it in the 2000s with shopping malls. And, you know, shopping malls were attracting tons of investment before internet shopping was broadly accessible. You know, we had a proliferation of shopping malls, which did brilliantly well, very, very high values and and low yields and highly in demand. And, you know, that's fallen away. and, And arguably, that would have been different had planning authority has been a little bit more careful and a little bit more judicious around consents and hadn't allowed such an oversupply of retail to a particular area. And I think that has happened to a small degree uh, with offices in the UK. It's very different to the US. It's a very good example. And, and we have major challenges with sentiment towards offices at the moment, because I think that in the US, the sentiment towards offices is particularly bad. But what I would say is where it concerns very well-connected, very well-amenitized areas. I'm all for high-density development. And, you know, my position remains unchanged insofar as where we've gone to the trouble of providing highly sustainable modes of getting people into city centre locations and driving the economy. I think we should be building as dense as we possibly can. We should be building, you know, taller and deeper right on top of tube stations and train stations because that's the most sustainable way to generate growth. So before we leave people, because we need to leave people a little bit inspired and to think about what should happen in their cities around the world. Toby, what are th- one or two things that you think might change the dial on the debate and move it into a position that you are happier with? I think where it comes to carbon, we should focus on setting rules of the game. What are the targets? What is a realistic embodied carbon saving versus new build? And that would allow stakeholders to understand where the boundaries are and, and assess within those, which I think would speed things up and provide more certainty. I think making refurbishment and repositioning planning consents easier and faster would be a great advantage to the cause of saving waste of embodied carbon. And I think that 
we should, as I said earlier, think about high density in core locations as a must-have. But that said, I think we should still protect buildings with a civic value. And it may be that M&S is found to have a civic value. Certainly lots of department stores will have, and you can always make that argument. But I think identifying in each particular location buildings with a civic value and helping those buildings to find new investment with incentives, however they come, would be very valuable for the particular communities in which those assets sit. Henrietta, your, your chance to leave people with a spring in their step, what should happen? Well, I really hope, and I would say this, wouldn't I, but that the m decision that we're now expecting in July leads to a transformation in the way that we value buildings and the way that our planning system works. And what I'd really like to see, and we haven't really touched on this, but I'd really like to see a default no demolition. That's not to say no more demolition, but you'd have to really make the case. You have to make the case for retrofit before demolition. We haven't talked about the context of the climate crisis and net zero and legislative statutory commitments that we've made on a global stage for net zero. But if we are hopeful of achieving that, we really do have to change the way we do business. And that includes the way we treat our built environment. And what I'd love to see is demolition being the last, not the first resort. The greenest building is the building that already exists. And we have an opportunity to really transform our towns and cities. My thanks to Henrietta Billings and to Toby Pentecost for joining me today. And that's all for this episode of The Urbanist. For more from the world of urbanism, sign up to the podcast to get new episodes every week. And make sure that you subscribe to Monocle magazine too. And you can do that at monocle.com. Today's show was produced by Carla Trabello and David Stevens. And David also edited the show. And to play you out this week, well, here's The Times with Department Store. Thank you for listening, city lovers. So-